Welcome to the Sword in the Trowel, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jared Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. Thank you for listening to the Sword in the Trowel. We are very grateful that you're tuning in here for this particular episode. And we want to let you know that we're going to be in Birmingham, Alabama for the Southern Baptist Convention on June 10th. Now, wait a minute. That's a day before the convention. The convention starts the 11th and it goes the 12th. That's right. We're also going to be there. We're going to have a booth. That's right. So come by and see us if you're going to be at the SBC in Birmingham. Come visit us in. Come a day early because we're going to have a day-long Founders Seminar. Oh, yeah. Founders Seminar, Mature Manhood in an Immature Age. This is going to be great. We have Mark Coppinger that's coming, a philosophy professor at uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Owen Strayan, who is a professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Josh Bice. Uh, boy, we've got a really good, this we is going to be really good. I, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't forget David Miller. David Miller. David Miller, who was on the board of trustees and was very instrumental in seeing the turnaround at Southern Seminary with Al Mohler being elected as president. Yes. Tom Nettles, former professor of historical theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's going to be a great time. So we want you to come out, founders.org. Go there and you can register to join us June 10th. For mature manhood in an immature age, a founder seminar the day before the Southern mature Baptist Convention. Manhood. That's right. In an immature age. Are you talking about today's age? Yeah, that's yeah. today's okay. age. What, that's what, what, today's <laughs> age. <laughs> no secret on that, right? <clears throat> we need some. We need to. We need to man up, and um, we're going to get some wisdom in how to do so. Excellent. Hey, so in our first uh, segment here, we want to talk about charges and accusations. We that we kind of something we know nothing it's about. It's like a it's like a cafeteria food fight <laughs> it's these just, days. It's just theoretical for us, though. Yeah, right? it's, just it's, theory, just all theory. it's theory, not practice. Um, but charges and accusations. There's a lot of charges being leveled today, and it seems people aren't quite sure what to do. Like, what do you do when a charge comes? What's the difference between a charge and a conviction? You believe uh, her. How should we think? Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> is that what we're told to do? Yes. I mean, isn't that what the world is telling us to do? Anybody that makes a charge, especially any woman that makes a charge, is to be believed automatically. Mm-hmm. Isn't that right? You don't think that's a good I idea? I don't think that's a good idea. Why? I think any woman who makes an accusation or any person who makes an accusation ought to be heard. Before everyone thinks that you're a misogynist. <laughs> it's too late. If I made a sign that said, believe men, <laughs> you would also disagree? I would disagree with that okay, as well. Okay, good. All right. So that's right. Just, but, but we should listen to them. So if they bring a charge, we listen to them. We mm-hmm. take seriously what they have to say. But there's no default mode here. And, and the people who are advocating for a default mode, thinking that they are serving justice, are really uh-huh. perpetuating injustice. Yeah, they are perpetuating injustice. So kind of a, let's, let's try to provide the greatest amount of truth we can in our first little segment here. Charges and accusations, a little theology of charges and accusations. The first thing that comes to mind is anytime somebody's making a charge, they're assuming a standard. So there, mm-hmm. there is a law. We're saying you've transgressed a law. You yeah. have, and, and something's sin, not right. Sins and crimes. Okay, so a sin is anything that transgresses the word of God, the law of God. A crime is something that uh, transgresses a civil law, a right. civil statute. And so you can have uh, a, a something statute. that is that is a sin and a crime. Right. Uh, at times, there will be something that's just a sin. Okay, so that's important to make a distinction. And when we're talking charges and accusations, we're in the we're talking about both and right. either or and whatever. Yeah. So an example would be, uh, fornication is a sin, but it is not a crime right. in our day and age in this country. Right. Whereas uh, sexual assault 
right. is both a sin and a crime. Sin and a crime. Uh, but generally speaking, we st- it's just good for Christians to think in these categories. When somebody's charging you with something or even implying some kind of wrongdoing on your part, even if it's these kind of minor kind of, um, you know, um, moral positioning that's going on, there's a standard underneath. And we mm-hmm. should think in those categories. What standard? Or what standards at play here? Um, what's going on? So then, uh, kind of a second truth that comes is a charge is not a conviction. Right? What does that? What's the? What's the point? There? Yeah. When somebody makes a charge, uh, they are wanting you to entertain their opinion, and that's all it is. Right there at the beginning is an opinion, and it's only as that charge then gains some foundation through evidence that it becomes sustainable. Sustainable. So. You, you go from entertaining to sustaining, and we should not take every charge as being a sustained accusation that is merited and warranted, and we've already prejudged the outcome of it, which has happened so often in our day. And, and uh-huh. to your point about making a charge just assumes there's a standard. Whenever people make a charge and they want to uh, force people into a standard in their own mind, that is not biblical, uh-huh. that is not warranted by God's word, they think very often, I think almost all the time, that they are serving the, the persons who have been oppressed mm. by mm-hmm. what has been accused that the perpetrator has done. But in reality, by going against God's standard, they're actually putting at greater risk those right. who are in danger of being oppressed. Right. Yeah. Uh, if you, if you, claim that someone has been victimized when he or she has not really been victimized, you do harm to real victims. Exactly. And if you say you must believe every accusation, okay, well, that's great when I'm the one making the accusation against you. But as we have seen happen in our culture, what happens when others make an accusation against me? It's what, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, I didn't do this. And where are the laws of evidence is now? Where's innocent until proven guilty right. now. And there's a reason for innocent until proven Absolutely. guilty. That's under the way that we think about charges. And and the problem is when there's not a conviction, there's not a conviction by a civil court or there's not a conviction by a church court, uh, we do wrong to say, well, this person is guilty mm-hmm. just because I know it. No, right. we, we have to suspend judgment. We say, okay, this is the world that we live in. And, and you know, a part of this, the, the theology underneath of this is that in this world in which we live, there are people that do very wicked things like um, steal, and then there's people that do very wicked things like lie. Mm-hmm. And we have to take into account both of those things. And we're not God. Right. We, we don't know. And so we're not saying that we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that this person is innocent, that this person yeah. did not do this thing. No, we're just, it, it, there's a part of humility saying we've done, there are going to be evils that happen in the world that never get uh, convicted, that right. the truth never comes in this, in this life. We should seek justice. We should pursue it with everything that we've got, but we're having to leave the ultimate uh, vengeance to God. Yeah. And we follow what God has given us in his word to try to discern what the truth is in this. Because anytime there is an accusation of a crime or a serious sin, there's an injustice that has been committed. Mm-hmm. It's either with the uh, right. accusation being true, so the person who's accused committed a crime or a sin, or the person doing the accusing has committed a crime and or a sin. And so we acknowledge that once this happens, then justice needs to be served, but it needs to be served with equal weights and measures. Yeah. So a charge is not a conviction. 
that's huge when it comes to the way that we function in the world, because there is a tendency to try to climb the ladder, to, to try and climb the ladder of public opinion right. and kind of keep yourself clean here. So what happens is if, if one person kind of gets starts to get smeared, well, he might he might never have been convicted of what right. he was charged, but we begin to treat him as if he was convicted. Right. We begin to kind of position ourselves or say, you know, hey, this really happened. Yeah. It takes restraint to say, no, look, okay, there was a charge, but there was no conviction here. And we need to operate accordingly. And we need to acknowledge that God's given different spheres where those judgments are to be made. He's given the family. Uh, he's given the church. He's given the state. What he has not given is Twitter. <laughs> okay. Twitter is not a place to adjudicate charges. Mm. So necessity of two witnesses. Here's another principle about charges and accusations. Scripture says in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. What's, yeah. what's the point here and why is it important? Well, this is the, the whole idea of innocent until proven guilty. And so if you just don't have this standard, if you don't have this uh, minimum requirement, then it's chaos mm. because I accuse you and my accusation has as much weight as 15 people who say they're eyewitnesses against something you've done. And uh, the, you're toast. I mean, the accused is always toast. And in the scripture, there is this presumption of innocence mm -hmm. and there's a willingness to entertain, but it has to be done in a way where you can try to discern the truth because there is reality. Either it happened or it didn't happen or it happened in a way other than what was said. So we want to get to reality yep. so that we can apply what God's word teaches us. Yeah, this 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 text, uh, and there's other texts that uh, say the same thing as this one, essentially, um, implies that we should uh, conduct ourselves with humility in the world. Right. God's saying, yeah, you know, you guys aren't that trustworthy. So you can, you can have, I, so I'd be willing, I want to submit myself to the text. If there's a terrible, a terrible crime that has happened, something really bad. And, and I have observed that. And I think, well, I'm generally a trustworthy person. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm just embodying, I'm not saying I am, but you know what I'm saying? This applies. Right. And I might have seen it with my eyes. I might know beyond the shadow of a doubt that it happens, but I need to be willing to say, if there's not two witnesses, then this person shouldn't be. This person shouldn't be convicted of this crime, right? Even if I really saw it, because God's standard is uh, two or three witnesses. You know, Jared, this text goes on in Deuteronomy 19 to say that the judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, mm. then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So shall you purge the evil from your midst. Accountable witnesses. Accountable. So you're witnesses. telling me that if I go to a court of law and I claim that you murdered someone and therefore you deserve the death penalty. Mm -hmm. If I'm a false witness that I should be put to death. Uh, that's what this says. That's equal weights and measures right there. And you know, Proverbs 18, 17, that the one who presents his case first seems right till another comes forward and questions him. Mm. And so this whole idea that we want to get at the truth is you can come and spin a wonderful story. You can name facts in that story that are true facts, but put it into your own way of thinking mm -hmm. that creates a, a scenario that is completely wrong. Yep. And so there needs to be cross-examination. There if needs we, to be opportunity for investigation. Yeah. If we abided by Deuteronomy 19.18, this would be a radically different situation. Absolutely. False in. accusations would go down and real justice would go up. Now, uh, one final text. Uh, 
Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1. It says, If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. That means you're actually bound to testify. Uh, if you hear, there's, there's a call to testify to mm. whatever situation that's going on, church, civil realm, um, and you... You don't testify, though you know, you saw, you had the information. This says you're going to bear your iniquity. Yeah. So if I see you uh, steal a hundred bucks from a cash register in a department store and somebody else sees it and they come forward and say, you know, we saw Pastor Jared steal a hundred bucks. I'm mm -hmm. thinking, man, I love Jared. You know, I'm, Jared's my friend and I don't know what's going on with him, but I'm not going to testify then I am actually overturning justice. Mm. I am being unjust. Mm. Well, Praise God for the wisdom that he's given us in his word concerning charges and accusations. This is something that we should inquire into diligently, especially kind of given the things that are going on in the world around us today. When we come back, we want to talk about a book written by Sinclair Ferguson, The Holy of Christ. Good book. Founders Ministries has been able to do what we've been doing for 35 years because people have joined with us and become part of our family. Today I'm inviting you to become a part of the Founders Fam as well. Become a Founders Alliance member. You can do this at different levels as you contribute to the work that Founders is engaged in. By going to founders.org you can see that you can give at the trowel level, you can give at the shield level, or you can give at the sword level. And if you give at any level we're going to send you a Founders package of materials. Materials. We have other exclusive material that we would make available to you as well as you contribute to help us build this ministry for the glory of God. Welcome back. In this segment, we want to talk about The Whole Christ, a book by Sinclair Ferguson. The subtitle of this book is Legalism, Antinomianism, and Gospel Assurance, why the Marrow Controversy Still Matters. This book was published in 2016 by Sinclair Ferguson. It's based on a series of talks he gave about the pastoral implications of the Marrow Controversy, I think back in 1980. Uh, he was invited by Walt Chantry to come over to a pastor's conference and to address that issue. It was his uh, second trip to the United States, and he said he was surprised that anybody in the United States knew about the Merrill mm -hmm. controversy, cared about it. When this book, I, I actually had, um, uh, Ernie Reisinger gave me a set of those uh, tapes, cassette tapes they were in those days, of those three talks. This is probably 1986, 87. And I listened to them, and it got me into the uh, uh, Merrill issues. And I went back and I read Thomas Boston's notes on the uh, Marrow of Modern Divinity by Edward Fisher. And it really was helpful to me. And, and I listened to the tape several times. So when the book came out in 2016, I grabbed it, read it. I was so impressed with it. In fact, I went back and looked at my notes this morning. And I read it on March 3rd, 2016. And here are the four words I put, outstanding, profound, vital. Right. And I can't read my last one, but it was good too. Yeah, if you, if you, if you are interested... <laughs> In uh, issues of law, issues of grace, issues of legalism, uh, antinomianism, a lot of that stuff flies around today. If you want to really get to the heart of what's going on, on in those issues, this is an excellent book. Absolutely. Excellent. He clears up so much, and, and he, he walks the fine line that the Bible requires us to walk. 
to see how we are to relate law to grace and recognizing that that legalism and antinomianism, we think of them as opposites. Mm-hmm. But as he calls them, I non-identical think, twins. Yeah, twins that are not identical. They come from the same womb. And what they're both opposed to is the gospel. Mm. And so we get, we've got to get the gospel right. Here's a, a, a creed that was current in the early 18th century in a session um, in Scotland that became kind of the, the focal point for the controversy. Let me read it because this is interesting. I wanted to ask folks, do you agree with this, especially pastors? Do you agree with this statement? I believe that it is not sound and orthodox to teach that we forsake sin in order to our coming to Christ and instating us in the covenant with God. So I believe that it is not sound, so that it's wrong, it's unorthodox to teach that we must forsake sin in order to come to Christ. So that's the question. And the question I would put, so what do you think about that? Mm-hmm. You know, if you if it lands on you one way, you'd say, well, of course you got to, because repentance is necessary to believe in Christ. And if you understand, as I do, that repentance and faith are just opposite sides of the same, same coin. coin. So you never have saving faith without saving repentance. You never have saving repentance without saving faith. Then you could hear that statement in a way that says, okay, but the the fundamental point is forsake sin in order to come to Christ. Mm -hmm. And that's where the legalism comes in. And this is where Thomas Boston, Edward Fisher, and the Merrow men of Scotland in the 18th century said, uh, we agree with this. It is not sound to teach that you must do this. And it got them in all kinds of trouble and created this massive controversy that uh, has lived on since then. And Ferguson un- untangles that controversy. Mm-hmm. And he, he doesn't just do it in a historical theological way. That's true. But he does it in a pastoral way. Because this is huge for how we preach, right. how we minister. This was very helpful to me on the issue of legalism. We think of legalism and say, okay, well, anyone who's who's looking at the law of God and saying, I am seeking to obey this law in order that I might be justified. Yeah. Well, that's a legalist. Okay. Right. But that's not the, that's only, not the only thing. That's not the right. only thing. Um, you also have the person simply adding to God's law. If you just add, you know, here's not 10 commandments, but 11, 12, 13 commandments. <laughs> uh, well, that's legalism. You're just, you're claiming that people ought to be doing something that God has said they ought not do. But he identified kind of a, even he shed more light on the issue for me. He says this on page 83. He's actually quoting Gerhardus Voss. And this is what he, this is what Voss said. Legalism is a peculiar kind of submission to God's law, something that no longer feels the personal divine touch in the rule it submits mm, to. Yeah. That was fascinating to me because it's not, it's not just obeying the law in order to be justified. That's not what Voss is talking about, uh, particularly here. He's not saying the person that adds to God's law. He's saying, okay, I'm taking God's law, and look, I'm not saying that I'm doing this to be justified, but you just you begin to submit to the law in a way that you're 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 losing the sense that right. it comes from my kind father's hand. Yeah. It's coming because it's good for me. It's coming because he loves me. And we can we can drift into that kind of legalism. So boy, it's just it's rich to get us going back to remembering the the mercy and goodness of God. Yeah. Th- th- he talks about legalism being a spirit or a feeling, you know, an attitude, an atmosphere. And we can be as straight as possible on the doctrinal issues of legalism and antinomianism and still have a legalistic spirit or an antinomian spirit. Mm -hmm. And so learning that our standing before God is only by grace in Jesus Christ, his perfect righteousness, plus nothing 
sets us free, but it sets us free to love the law, mm. to delight in obeying God, not so that he accepts us, but because we're confident he accepts us on the basis of Christ. Yeah. He gets into the causal relationship between God's love and Christ on the cross and mm-hmm. says, you know, it's sometimes it's easy for us to think, well, Jesus died on the cross for me. And because Jesus died on the cross for me, uh, the result is God loves me. Yeah. And he says, yeah. he says, well, no. And there might be dimensions of that that are true. But what we need to keep in mind it is the love that God has for us. It's because God loved us that he sent his son for us to yeah. die a particular atonement for our sins as the elect. And boy, remembering that love of God flowing down toward us. You know, there's a couple of other issues that grew out of the marital controversy. One is the the, uh, controversy over preparationism. Mm. You know, how much is necessary for a person to uh, be prepared before he can come to Christ. And another was the debate over the way of faith versus the warrant of faith. And I would just commend a sermon by Spurgeon. I think it's on uh, 1 John 3, 13, I think it is. Uh, about this is the commandment that we believe in him uh-huh. that is on the, it's called the warrant of faith. It's a great sermon. I, I do think Spurgeon throws a couple of uh, Puritans under the bus that shouldn't necessarily be thrown under the bus, but nevertheless, this argument is really good yeah. to see the difference. There's a difference between the way of faith. Here's how faith works, conviction of sin, turning from it versus the warrant of faith. On what basis do we have to believe Christ? On what basis do we call upon people to trust Christ? It's not because they have some sense of their own uh, inadequacy or not because they have certain feelings. It's because Jesus Christ has come and he mm. says, come to me, believe the gospel. Mm. That's the warrant. God commands it. Amen. Amen. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be continuing our study through the law of God, different commands we see in scripture. We're going to be talking about what it means to rejoice oh in boy. the Lord. Oh boy. God gives us some good commands. Doesn't All right. It? Like we have to. <laughs> Welcome back to this segment of the Sword and Trial. And on this segment, we want wait, to... Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. You done thrown me off my groove, man. The Sword and Trial? Yeah, the Sword and Trial. <laughs> <laughs> or welcome back to Sword and Trial. I'm sorry. Oh, I wasted goodness. words. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry for interrupting you. Go I ahead. Forgive you. Bring I us forgi- back in, man. I'm going to rejoice. Hey, you're going to rejoice. <laughs> rejoice always. Can we talk about repenting? I think uh, that's a different we'll command. We'll talk about that about. tomorrow. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Yeah. The Bible, we're, we talk about commands in this segment of our uh, The Sword and The Trial podcast. Oh, I love for it. Jared, you're welcome. It. Thank you. And the command we want to talk about today is rejoice. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago as it relates specifically to persecution or when you are being treated unjustly Mm. by people. But this is a command that is found dozens of times, both Old and New Testaments, that we are obligated to be joyful. Isn't that amazing? God commands our joy. Philippians 4, 4, you'll rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say to you, rejoice. And there's lots of other verses like that. Uh, when our kids were young sitting around the table, we'd often try to illustrate this point by uh, after we had our meal, if we had dessert, we'd serve the dessert. And I say, all right, listen to me, kids, you must eat this dessert. You understand me? <laughs> you must eat this apple pie. You've said that to my kids. Uh, and they I look at that? you with that strange look. 
<laughs> and all I was trying to do, I probably did a poor job, but trying to just set before them that the command to do something you enjoy is what God has given us. He's yeah. commanded our joy. Yeah. And to understand the world as God made it and the provisions of grace that we have in Christ. My goodness, why would we not rejoice? It's here. It's in the, it's in a command like this one that we are clearly reminded that the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. They're mm. good. They're good for us. Oh, That's how right. I love your law. And this is true of all of his commands, not just rejoice, but when it comes to rejoice, you just really think, man, okay. I mean, this is great. Yeah. He's, but you know, Hey man, I'm human. You know, I mean, I got real problems. That's yeah. right. Which, so we, we kind of need to talk about what is it? What, what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? And it's interesting that the apostle says it twice here in Philippians four, four rejoice in the Lord mm -hmm. always. Again, I'll say, why do you think uh, he says it twice? Rejoice. You know, I, I don't know. I think, I think it's a, uh, maybe we're slow to we're, I think we're slow to rejoice. Yeah, I think there is that tendency. I know there's optimists and pessimists in the world and all that, but there, you know, there's this, this is more than just optimism. Think though. about the, the gospel. The gospel means good news. Yeah. I mean, Christians. So the 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 flavor is this is good. This yeah. is good. Come to grips and see how how good things are. Rejoice. I say it. Rejoice. You know, and Paul writes this from prison, and mm. he doesn't just say. Hey, be happy. Put on a, a slappy, happy face all the time. Mm -hmm. It's rejoice in the Lord. So what's that? What's the difference between rejoice and rejoice in the Lord? Rejoice in the Lord is remember that you are in the Lord. And if you're in Christ, your worst day is better than the best day Bill Gates has ever had. Mm. I mean, if you're in Christ, you mm -hmm. have heaven. John Newton tells this wonderful story about a man who receives a post from uh, a long lost uncle who is the wealthiest man in the kingdom who's died. And the, the post says, uh, you've inherited everything. So you're now the wealthiest man in the kingdom. I'm sending a chariot for you. So the chariot comes, he gets in the chariot. They're on the way for him to get the inheritance to be the richest man in the kingdom. And on the way, the wheel comes off the chariot. He says, the man sits down, begins to cry, say, what a poor man I am. How bad my <laughs> life is. My chariot's broken. Here I am. I don't have a chariot that's going to get me. So we would think of that as absolutely foolish. Uh -huh. Yet that's us, man. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then Lord, rejoicing the Lord implies his authority. It implies that he's king. And so what do you want to do? You know, if, if Jesus is king, my goodness, this is, this is everything's on the up and up. It really is. The yeah. best is always yet to come. It's kind of be illustrated in me and my family. So, uh, you know, I'm the I'm the head of the household, and here we are. Say we all load up in the van, and we are all going to go to the beach, right? What do I want my kids to do? I want them to rejoice. Mm. I mean, could you imagine them kind of moping on the way to the beach? Oh, it's taking so long. <laughs> oh, 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 you know. Well, what does that signal to the head? You know, that's yeah. you you're not, not doing a good job. What are you doing, kids? You're ungrateful. <laughs> well, you know, whenever we complain, uh, really about anything, but whenever we let these complaints live in us deeply, what we are saying is, God, mm. we don't like the way you're running your world. Mm. And to believe in the sovereignty of God, to remember that He gave up His Son for us. Right. And yeah, this may be a hard day, and I may be going through painful things I would never have chosen. But they have been filtered through the loving hands of my heavenly father right. who gave Jesus for me. And he is worthy of trust. And in that, I can rejoice. And that language that you just used there is signaling. It's all language of faith. Yeah. And, and admittedly, we want to we want to weep with those who weep. And then we want to just acknowledge that, you know, yes, we don't rejoice as we ought to rejoice. There's times where we become uh, we lack faith. There's times where we're not seeing the truth for what it is. So if you're going to rejoice <laughs> in the Lord, 
it takes faith. It takes apprehending the truth of God and what he has revealed to us. And that's something that comes by the spirit. So even this command, you know, we don't, we we don't keep these on our own. We come to God and say, God, I know I'm not rejoicing as I don't know. I'm not seeing all these things, right? I can see that I have a complaining spirit here. Um, Please come and help me to see what's true. Remind me of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the blessings that flow from his kingship over my life. And then joy breaks forth on my worst day. There needs to be one more thing for us to say about this. I think it's in second Corinthians six where Paul describes himself as an apostle and what all he's gone through. And he says, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Mm -hmm. And so we tend to think rejoicing and sorrowing are opposites, but you need to figure out how to be sorrowful and rejoice at the same time because your emotional health depends upon it. And in Christ, you can do it. You can weep and still have joy. That's right. And look to Christ for that, right? It was the joy that was set before him for which he endured the cross. Amen. So he is the model. Again, he's the one who's fulfilled all of the law. He's the joyful Christ. And uh, trusting him, we can be joyful too. Amen. Thanks and, again for... Li- oh, And cool. we're not in hell. We're not in hell. <laughs> and we see the Christ in the heavenly, <laughs> heavenly place. That's right. Every spiritual blessing, baby. All right. <laughs> Hey, thanks so much for listening to The Sword and the Trial today. Uh, We look forward to uh, being with you again next time we do this. Plan to come to Birmingham. Birmingham. We'll see you then.